When we were together live, we started with a reading from the Psalms. And so I'm going to start the same way here before I begin our sermon. Worship Yahweh, O my soul, and all that is within me. Worship God's holy name. Worship Yahweh, O my soul, and do not forget all God's benefits. Who forgives all your waywardness, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and compassion, who satisfies you with good as long as you live, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Yahweh works vindication and justice for all who are oppressed. God made known their ways to Moses, their acts to the people of Israel. Yahweh is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. They will not always accuse, nor will they keep their anger forever. They do not deal with us according to our failures, nor repay us according to our wayward acts. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is their steadfast love toward those who fear God. As far as the east is from the west, so far they have removed our transgressions from us. As a parent has compassion for their children, so Yahweh has compassion for those who fear God. Several years back now, my grandfather died, my mom's dad, and since I was a young pastor, I was asked to officiate at the memorial. It was a fairly informal sort of service with a good deal of time for friends and acquaintances to share stories, and the stories that were shared were something of a surprise for me. My grandfather lived in a retirement community in the desert of Tucson at the time and had one of the most beautiful gardens you've ever seen. Bright flowers, desert scape, a little stream and pond with plants draped all around, We visited my grandfather now and then when I was growing up, far less often than we visited my dad's parents, less often really than we visited with the rest of my mom's extended family, and we were visited by my grandfather even less often, which was the main story I heard about him as a kid. See, my mom's mom died when I was three, and my grandfather remarried barely a year later, and from my mom's perspective at least, everything changed for the worse. The story I heard, and I'm paraphrasing and condensing here and taking the stuff that I heard as a child and trying to reinterpret it, of course, but the story I heard was that my grandfather was wishy-washy and weak, that he just went with the flow, and while he had been one way, married to my grandmother, who was an exacting, principled, proper, and highly involved sort, he now had changed his personality with his new wife, who was more free-spirited and certainly less involved. The greatest sin in my mom's eyes was that without the devoted interest of my grandmother to anchor him, he had drifted away and was apparently uninterested in being as involved a grandparent as he would have been had my grandmother still been alive. But at the funeral, person after person stood up with tearful eyes talking about my grandfather's generosity, his kindness, how he had helped them too to have a beautiful garden to enjoy in the Arizona desert as they lived out their final years. He had had a bit of a landscaping design and maintenance gig going in the retirement community, and they were feeling his loss acutely. It was an entirely new side of my grandfather for me, stories I had never heard before. I'm sure for my mom, it was yet more evidence of him having misdirected his generosity that would have been better spent on us. But for me, it was significant. The stories we hear about our families shape us, tell us who we are, who we should or shouldn't be, where we've come from. And even though I didn't see him that often, I did feel a bit of a connection with my grandfather. We had the same physical build, more or less, same height, same blue eyes, same smile. In some ways, I felt more similar to him than I did to my own parents. And as a kid, I can remember a vague sense of, well, I'm sometimes different in one circle of friends than in another circle of friends. 
I can just go with the flow sometimes. I wonder if I'm as bad as he is, if I'll be just like that. Looking back, of course, I know that that's just being a kid, not some sort of horrible character flaw, but at the time I didn't know that. And at the funeral, I got new stories. Stories that far more closely matched the person I wanted to be. The stories we hear about our families shape us, tell us who we are, who we should or shouldn't be, where we've come from. On my dad's side, I had a grandmother who was a fantastic cook and a grandfather who, had, who could outwork my dad any day, as the story went. And my dad is about the hardest worker I've ever seen. And those stories, too, have shaped me. Making food for family and friends to enjoy, working until the job is done, no matter how tedious or exhausting, those are stories I want to be true of me, that I want to be true for my kids. They shape what it means to be a part of our family. We've been talking in this series about the mission of God, that God dreams of a time when all of creation would live in harmony with and reflective of God's character. And we've talked about how one key aspect of that mission is that God has given away responsibility to humanity, inviting God's people to make God known to the nations by living as a community that shows what God is like. And it's no accident that what we find in the Bible, the book that God has given us, are stories. Stories of what our God is like, who our God is, what our God has done. Because the stories we hear about our families, they shape us, tell us who we are who we should or shouldn't be, where we've come from. It matters the stories we tell ourselves about God, if we are going to be a community that makes God known. One story, the dominant one for some Christians, is that God is a holy God, one who cannot stand to be in the presence of sin and who requires punishment for all our failings. But thanks to God's love for us, Jesus came to die and take that punishment on himself so that we could go to heaven, not hell. But that isn't the dominant story that we find in the Bible. There are hints of something like bits and pieces of it here and there, although even those hints differ in some important ways from the story I just mentioned, but that's a topic for another series someday. But if we seriously look at the stories and themes, the words God has given us to live by in the Bible, we would find different stories dominating the narratives, not bits and pieces here and there, but all throughout, showing up again and again. And so we're going to look at those stories a bit today and consider how they might help us adjust our understanding of who we are, as stories so often do. If you read through the instructions in the Torah, you may notice a refrain that keeps popping up throughout, a repetition each time the question of, wait, why do we need to live like this again, comes up. In Exodus 13, 14, says this, when in the future your child asks you, what does this mean? You shall answer, by strength of hand, Yahweh brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. At the start of the Ten Commandments, then God spoke all these words, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. In Leviticus 25, which we'll come back to in a minute, when talking about the economic relationship the people are to have to one another, especially when a member of the community is in need. It says this, If any of your kin fall into difficulty and become dependent on you, you shall support them. They shall live with you as though resident aliens. Do not take interest in advance or otherwise make a profit from them, but fear your God. Let them live with you. You shall not lend them your money at interest taken in advance or provide them food at a profit. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. 
to give you the land of Canaan to be your God. The Exodus story is the dominant story Israel told herself about their God. Who is our God? Our God is Yahweh who freed us from slavery in Egypt. Our God is a God who sets people free and who can be trusted. Our God has power over all the earth, even over the gods of Egypt, even over the most powerful human figure in existence, Pharaoh. Our God is one who hears the cries of the oppressed and overturns the oppressors. And who cares so much about that, that we are in turn forbidden from becoming oppressors to one another. Our God chooses a weak, insignificant, enslaved people to be God's people, not because we deserved it, but just because that's who our God is. That is the dominant story that frames the whole Old Testament. As Christopher Wright says in his book, The Mission of God, which has been something of an inspiration for this series, all of this widespread use of the Exodus tradition and vocabulary is based on the conviction that God is characteristically and perpetually motivated by the same impulses that triggered the Exodus. Indeed, according to the text, God insists to be known that way. So although the Exodus stands as a unique and unrepeatable event in the history of Old Testament Israel, it also stands as a paradigmatic and highly repeatable model for the way God wishes to act in the world and ultimately will act for the whole creation. This is then the story that gets picked up in the New Testament. Matthew in his gospel gives illusion after illusion, calling back to mind the Exodus, so as to say, this is what Jesus is doing too. A new Exodus is here. God is once again setting the people free from oppression. God, in Jesus, is setting people free from slavery once again. This is a point that both of my two favorite Bible scholar writes, Christopher Wright and N.T. Wright, they both point this out. This freedom that Jesus is offering, it takes two forms in the New Testament. There is freedom from the oppression of Rome and the oppressive system and culture that exists under Rome. And then there is also freedom from sin. And these are related, intertwined ideas. The New Testament writers and Jesus himself certainly saw the entire political and cultural reality of Rome to be oppressive, sinful. In Revelation, the Roman Empire is very explicitly linked to the activity of the devil and is animated by evil. The idolatry, injustice, oppression, violence, and greed of Rome are in themselves forming a system of slavery. The people are enslaved to the Roman worldview, the Roman way of life, one that makes anything other than idolatry, injustice, oppression, violence, and greed unthinkable. This is just the way the world works, they think, and they operate within the system, slaves to the system, because they don't believe they can act otherwise than how the system dictates they act. And then by operating as slaves to the system, the people become participants in the system, complicit in the idolatry, injustice, oppression, violence, and greed. The people become, in this sense, slaves to sin as Paul puts it elsewhere in the New Testament. They become themselves greedy, violent, oppressive, unjust, idolatrous, which just reinforces the whole cycle then. And God's exodus impulse is to set people free, free both from the oppression of the evil system and 
from the individual impulse to sin that comes out of that system. Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, Paul tells us, are intended to break the power of that system, to liberate the people from slavery, just like in the Exodus, to liberate them to live a life together that is in harmony with and reflective of God's character, not reflective of the character of empire. I've been saying all this in the past tense, but this is the gospel today too, of course, that Jesus offers freedom from the idolatry, injustice, oppression, violence, and greed of the current system, the current empire, the one that makes us too think, well, this is just the way the world works, and we go along with it, becoming slaves. Jesus tells us that life is not found in that system, that only death is found there. Life is found in Jesus. Not in some disembodied future sense, but here. Now, life is found in living a life of following Jesus, a life that is in harmony with and reflective of God's character, and which allows us then to make known to the nations around us that our God is a liberating God, a God of freedom and life, just like the stories say again and again. And I want to close by looking at one more story, a story that's linked to the Exodus story, as pretty much every part of the Bible is, but that makes more concrete what it means to live our lives in harmony with an Exodus sort of God. I read earlier from Leviticus 25, where God says, since I am Yahweh, the God who set you free from Egypt, you will not oppress one another, but you will be generous to those who are in trouble. You were in trouble in Egypt, and my response was not to oppress you, like the Egyptians, not to leave you in the oppressive system, but rather to set you free. And not because you deserved it, but because that's just the sort of God that I am. And that passage is in the middle of a bigger story in Leviticus 25 that expands upon this idea. We're going to start in verse 8. You shall count off seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the period of seven weeks of years gives 49 years. Then, You shall have the trumpet sounded loudly on the 10th day of the seventh month on the day of atonement. You shall have the trumpet sounded throughout all your land and you shall make the 50th year holy and you shall proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. You shall return every one of you to your property and every one of you to your family. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. You shall not sow or reap the aftergrowth or harvest the unpruned vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat only what the field itself produces. In this year of jubilee, you shall return every one of you to your property. When you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not cheat one another. When you buy from your neighbor, you shall pay only for the number of years since the jubilee. The seller shall charge you only for the remaining crop years. If the years are more, you shall increase the price, and if the years are fewer, you shall diminish the price. For it is a certain number of harvests that are being sold to you. You shall not cheat one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am Yahweh your God. And then jumping down to verse 23. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. With me you are but aliens and tenants." Throughout the land that you hold, you shall provide for the redemption of the land, the buying back of the land. If any one of your kin falls into difficulty and sells a piece of property, then the next of kin shall come and redeem what the relative has sold. 
If the person has no one to redeem it, to buy it back, but then prospers and finds sufficient means to do so, the years since its sale shall be computed, and the difference shall be refunded to the person to whom it was sold, and the property shall be returned. But if there are not sufficient means to recover it, what was sold shall remain with the purchaser until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee, it shall be released, and the property shall be returned. Now, if you didn't quite catch all of that, that's okay. Let me sum up. If anyone falls on hard times and needs to sell their land, which in those days, remember, was the sole means of supporting oneself and one's family, then they aren't actually selling their land. In our terms, we would say that they're leasing it for however many years remain until the Jubilee year, the 50th year. And at that point, the land is to revert back to the original owners. Jubilee is the idea that while there is inevitably going to be some who prosper and some who don't, often because of the good and bad choices people make, but sometimes because of bad luck or health or whatever other factors, but whatever the reason the difference in outcomes comes about, it should not lead to permanent inequality. Every 50 years, a family is given a new start. The playing field is re-leveled. The means of supporting one's family is restored equally, rather than wealth being steadily concentrated in the hands of a few. There are not some who have to work multiple minimum wage jobs to support their family while others fly themselves to space on penis rockets. If only Leviticus had some relevance to life today. Our God is an Exodus God, one who sets people free from oppression. And that means that we are a Jubilee people who do what we can, even if it's as radical today as returning land to the original owner was back then. We do what we can to make sure people can have life, freedom, dignity, joy. We don't ask questions about who deserves what or whether they brought it on themselves because our God didn't ask those questions of us. This is the problem with our dominant story about God when it's the one that I mentioned earlier, the holy God who punishes people's failures. There's the theological problem of, as I've been trying to make the case today, it's not actually the main story God tells about God's self in the Bible. But there's also a practical problem. When we hear stories about our God who must punish all failure, that impacts how we look at the world around us. It impacts how we make God known. But the main dominant story of the Bible is not that story. It's instead that our God set us free from slavery because our God is an Exodus sort of God. And that if we are going to make that God known, then we reflect that by being a Jubilee sort of people. Generous, sacrificial, life-giving. That's the story that scripture wants to shape the people of God. That's the story that animates us as we make God known to the world around us. But there's an important thing to remember here. The Bible does not just say, thou shalt be a jubilee sort of people, so come on, try harder, do better, because I said so. The refrain I mentioned a few minutes ago is there for a reason. Be a jubilee people because you have experienced that God is an exodus God. Yahweh sets you free from slavery. So now live in a way that reflects that. As the New Testament might put it, we love others because Christ first loved us. As Psalms might say, we taste and see that Yahweh is good. 
And from that knowledge and the stories we tell each other about God's goodness, we then are shaped into a Jubilee people. And so with our response time live, we went with remembering and experiencing God's own exodus by bodily going to a place that would fill us with life, that would remind us that we have been set free, whether that was going for a walk or looking at the mountains or taking some deep breaths. And so I'd encourage you to do that as well, wherever you are right now, to take some time to experience the reality that our God is an exodus sort of God, that our God sets us free. And then from that foundation to live as a Jubilee sort of person, as you go out into the world.